You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger. Today, my guest is Jack Sargent, author of Against Control and Death Tripping. Hey, Jack, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. And this conversation or this meetup was actually spurned by Jonas Kelliger, who had put us in contact, who published your, your book Against Control of Essays yes, about that's right, William yeah. Burroughs. And uh, Jonas also won half of the Segerhuva label out of Sweden. And I thought that talking about Burroughs and his impact on experimental music could be an interesting. Obviously, we see it in stuff as foundational as Throb and Gristle, right? Even the, the research book that's like the Burroughs and, and Throb and Gristle uh, issue. And it's trickled down from there for everybody, I think. Uh, a lot of us, especially people of, of my age and older, I think, really got to know and, and come in contact with a lot of Burroughs' work through references and other media we were consuming. And even Burroughs' own cut-up experiments, Breakthrough in Grey Room, and just that realm of stuff, and it's bleed through into what we have today. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think we're going to talk a little bit about that and then some other projects that Jack is working on today. Yeah. <laughs> so where do we start? Where did your interest in Burroughs come from? Oh, man, that's a really good question. I think it's one of those things that, like you say, it was always part of the kind of mise-en-scene of, of the underground. So when I was very young, I discovered I had older friends who turned me on. This one I was like 12, which would be in like 1980, turning me on to Thorbin Grizzle and Cabaret Voltaire. Uh, and that, you know, that just leads you to, you know, you explore things from that. It's very much... I felt there's very much an exploring kind of uh, era where you would you would hear something, uh, you'd read an interview. So in Britain, we had three music papers each week. We had NME, Sounds, and Melody Maker. And I subscribed to I subscribed to Sounds and then switched to NME. And I had a friend who subscribed to both. So you'd read them both every week, and then Melody Maker, another friend would subscribe to. So you'd be reading the music press every week and there was so much happening, especially in the kind of post-punk era where you would have, you know, great records being released the whole time. Uh, so, and they'd all be covered. And because there was so much to cover, they seemed to cover a lot. And there, there was a lot of writers writing for, for those magazines who like the newspapers really, uh, who were smart and would, would like make references to things in reviews of live gigs and reviews of albums or in interviews. So there was a kind of high level of engagement and discourse around all this stuff, uh, which maybe in some respects, some people might have said, thought of as kind of pretentious or whatever, but it, it just, when you're young and you've got that kind of searching mind and you're trying to find stuff out, it was just really great to have that. Uh, and it was like, a, all those things were part of a gateway. And then you had these bands who sometimes they were in those newspapers uh, or people would write letters about them to the newspapers. So that would always, you know, there'd always be this kind of music was so central in a way that it's very hard, almost, yeah, it was, your identity was really fixed on music. Uh, so having these older friends who was uh, really interested in experimental music, I really... I guess located myself in that kind of post-punk and then you know, slash industrial kind of side of it. Uh, so it really, 
it was really part of growing up. So then a bit later when, yeah, you, you hear of William Burroughs and then it would have been 80, God, I should know the dates off by heart and I don't, 82, uh, where you had the Final Academy in London, where you had uh, people like Psychic, I think, it was, I think it was officially the first Psychic TV gig, but I'm sure somebody might correct me on that one. But and they had Burroughs come over and do readings. So there was a lot of that in the air. And at the same time, the Anthony Bouch films uh, that he made of William Burroughs and Brian Geisen with Ian Somerville and so on were being circulated on you know, videotape and so on. So all of this stuff was just there. So I was in my, my mid-teens and it was just, I was aware of this stuff happening. So that really becomes a, a part of what, what you're looking for, you know, that, that kind of interest. And then the, so this is in the olden days where every town has like a, an alternative bookstore. <laughs> uh, so we had one, I grew up in a town called Brighton on the south coast of England. We had one called Public House Books. Uh, and it was in a side street. And you go in and it would have like an occult section, uh, a politics section, or like a feminism section. Uh, fiction section, a beatnik section, then a new in section, and the new in section is where we discovered research, <laughs> and that's where we, you get the research. So it was the research did an issue which was Dobbin Grissel, William Burroughs, and Brian Geisen, oh, and yeah. that was just like it would cost you all your money. I mean, we had no money. Remember, we were like teenagers, and you buy it and you just take it home and you'd read it, but then. All of those interviews have lists of books after and films after. And that was just like a, another gateway. So all of this stuff was about gateways into new worlds, into new kind of ideas and thinking. Uh, and of course, you have the Industrial Culture Handbook come along. Yeah. Those so, research books were invaluable resources for even someone you know younger than you learning about all of that stuff at the time I did. They were, they were just essential. Yeah, I mean, look. And the research books, because they really focused on ideas, uh, yeah, like what, what, what were bands thinking? What was motivating them? Why were they doing this? And they let the people talk. So, you know, they talk about you know, performance art and stuff like that, which now I'm not 100% sure of my memory, but I'm fairly certain that the weekly newspapers they might have Throbbing Gristle or Cabo Voltaire interviewed, but I don't recall, and I could be wrong, but I don't recall that much discussion on performance art. Uh, whereas you got that stuff in the research stuff. So you got this, again, another kind of world opening up. There's actually, just thinking about the British music press, there's an article which you see sometimes people post it on Facebook called Forgive Us Our Sins Memory Serves. And it was a round table discussion about the role of the synthesizer. And it was, and I might be wrong on the, again, this is going back to my, my memory. Uh, memory serves, it was Genesis Purage from Throbbing Gristle. I think, I think Chris Carter from Throbbing Gristle. Uh, I think Cozy from Throbbing Gristle. And then Cole Blake, maybe, from the Lemon Kittens. Uh, I think Boyd Rice, 
uh, and then I think I think it was Phil Oakley from the Human League, and they had all these different people who were somehow in new music in some way, and they had them all kind of talking about this. And this is a really fat. Yeah. So when you're 14 years old, 13 years old, this stuff is just like wow. Yeah. So you had this kind of stuff, but then when you got the research, you got this other angle coming in about talking about coom transmissions, talking, you know, other, other, no one has heard of survival research laboratories and stuff like that until you saw research. I mean, no one in England. So it was just such a gateway, you know, and those things, they were just so important, I think. What do you think the common thread between all of those things was there or was there a common thread like what was linking survival research laboratories with william burroughs with throbin gristle with the I human mean, league even yeah oh well I, okay so I, i've got my phone here i was so tempted just to google that article and find that it's like <laughs> if memory serves that uh, this this ends into an argument with the human league on one side and throbin gristle on the other but i could be wrong uh but uh what linked all this stuff was Well, I said a minute ago about post-punk, and there was a really important moment for me as a kid was that the post-punk thing, thing of everything is possible, and people were saying things, you know, I guess that came from punk, you know, you need two chords, form a band kind of thing. But then post-punk seemed to extend that into a different way because the music wasn't like rock music in any, in any discernible sense for a lot of the time. You have groups like Cabaret Voltaire and This Heat and... Uh, the fall all sound totally different from each other, you know, but they all are somehow lumped together as post punk. Right. So there was this, this was kind of such a, to be, to be around this growing up, I just, and having always, as I say, older friends who have played this stuff to me. Uh, and then in England, obviously, growing up, you had John Peel on the radio, who was a DJ who famously launched many, many, Bands yeah. from like the mid '60s till his death, uh, and he he would you'd listen to it every night. It was four nights a week. It was, it was ten o'clock till midnight. So you know you finish your homework or whatever, and you go to bed and you listen to it. And he, you know he would have a you know he, one minute he'd be, be playing some reggae record like King Tubby or something, and then it would suddenly cut to the birthday party, and then the fall, and then you know something else so see this this sense of this whole wide possibility was there and i think that that sense of possibility for me felt really really important so what connects these things to me on one level is that personal sense of all this stuff is possible i can do any of these things or we can do any of these things there are no limits to what's possible aesthetically uh and I think that was a real moment for people. Like that, to me, to me, I guess that's the important thing of of uh, post punk is that sense of anything being possible, anything being able to happen. And once you get that sense of anything is possible, it's it's liberating. It's you know, uh, and then God, I remember. Yeah, then you got like the Einsteins and the Neubauten albums, and again, it was like, wow, they haven't even got instruments. You know, they. <laughs> They're hammering on bits of steel, and it's yeah. That we I first heard what's the first one, Collapse, just after it came out. So that would have been like 83, 84, I think that came out. Uh, so you're aware that this stuff is, you know, all these things are happening, all this stuff is possible. Uh, and it was, I remember, you know, 
there was just this this feeling of uh, nothing was constrained. Yeah. So then you start doing your, you read research, you do your research, and you start realizing there's other people who've challenged things as well. So I think that to me, Burroughs is one of those people. Uh, but then you kind of find out as you grow older about the you know the beatniks and how they challenge stuff, and then you kind of find out about jazz and how you know musicians there you know, the role of improvisation and things like that, which I can't claim to be an expert in. But you just become aware of all this stuff, and obviously that's kind of in the end becomes your knowledge of the underground and the counterculture. You know this idea that there's different ways of doing things. There's the way that you you were taught at school wasn't necessarily the only way you had to do things. There was other ways to do them. And to me, that moment was like, okay, that, this makes things more exciting, which is it's kind of also weird for me because I never, because I had older friends, I never had that moment of, I mean, uh, I think I had one ABBA album for a little while when I was about nine. But I never had that pop music phase that people go through where they, you know, they, so I never had that. So now I have these odd conversations where people say, do you remember such and such a record? I have no knowledge of it. <laughs> uh, but ironically, of course, I, once I got into this kind of music, I sold my ABBA album. And now as an adult, I'm like, that was a great album. ABBA was one of the best pop bands yeah. ever. <laughs> and of course, there's that great photo on Heath and Earth. And you can see Chris Carter's wearing an ABBA badge uh, on the cover photograph. So obviously... I was onto something even with ABBA. But no, there was just, to me, it's just a sense of possibility. And all these things share that sense of possibility. And part of that sense of possibility is how they challenge existing structures. You know, they don't just accept what's there. And to me, that was really, that kind of, that potential is so important. Burroughs also branched out into music with if you call it that, right, is cut up experiments, but also there were collaborations with uh, what was the uh, Spare Ass Annie album, and there was the collaboration of sorts with Kurt Cobain, the priest they called him, which is, you know, him reading with some playing under it. Uh, not sure how direct those collaborations were in terms of with people, but it seemed that he was definitely open to expanding into into music. And of course, there's the just the great... Uh, Set on Jono Poetry Systems, the the four CD collected, or four LP even of uh, like him like readings of William Burroughs, him doing different readings, and the cut ups presence. Even when he's reading, you you get this feel. But they were also, in some way, a lot of the works doctored, right? Like cutting up was the the inspiration, but the earliest stuff was really literally cut ups and pasting together and taking the result. And that that influence or that, that technique has left a huge mark on experimental music in terms of, of, you know, something like Nurse with Wound, right? Something like Throbbing Gristle, where those ideas are taken and, and put quite literally into the audio sense and applied with field recordings, with sourced recordings, with their own music. What... Where do you see the influence of Burroughs starting with music? It must have started before oh, wow. Throbbing Gristle. Which is, you know, obviously for those of us into industrial, that's the, that's the entry point. So that's a really good question. I mean, because you go back to things like, you know, 
bands who take their names, you know, for, there was you know, the Soft Machine, for example, as a band. Right. Uh, so there's all there's that influence of uh, Burroughs as a writer and his kind of textual, the phrases he invented, the terms he coined, entering the kind of lexicon and becoming you know, the, the Soft Machine. Uh, wasn't Steely Dan as well? I think. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd have you'd have to check the Steely Dan one, but I think Steely Dan. Uh, so there was that aspect. The Mugworms. There was a band called the Mugworms as well, right? <laughs> Which was, and I'm reading now from the internet, okay, because we were just talking about it. Uh, it was Cass Elliot, Denny Doherty, and John Sebastian, uh, according to uh, the internet. So yeah, there's yeah folk rock band called the Mugworms, and that now. I don't know if the, I can't claim to be at the moment, moment to remember Mugwomp was a term coined by Burroughs or a term that existed free Burroughs right. within the counterculture. But I, yeah, to me, that's an interesting. Certainly popularized yeah. by now when you hear it, that's the only thing you, yeah, it's the only thing thing you think, of. think of. So obviously, of course, Burroughs influenced you know, David Bowie and kind of the sense of the, you know, the cut-up technique as a way in which to do lyric writing. So I think there's that. I think there's also, I think Lou Reed, you know, the whole Velvet Underground's, you know, relationship to contemporary American literature and poetry and stuff. So I think you would probably argue for an aspect there. Uh, but there's also, in terms of the experimental stuff, I mean, I think I think the the idea of experimenting with sounds was obviously predates Burroughs. You know, you go right back to, for example, the futurists and the noise machines that uh, they were inventing and playing with. But I think, I think that there's, there's just a sense of things being possible, you know? Uh, but I think I've been really interested to know, I think the first, this is actually covered in Against Control and I haven't got a copy to hand. I think the first Burroughs sound experiment record was released in about 69, I want to say. This will be one of these moments where you have to edit it and I'll phone in and give you the actual <laughs> day. Uh, but I think it was 69 and it was uh, a 10-inch single, uh, which is just his voice, but it had been manipulated and cut up. But then obviously there's cut up sound experiments going on as well, which they were doing in the Beat Hotel and then in London throughout the 60s. And then he did them in New York as well, up until the 70s. And then... Obviously, industrial records released nothing here now but the recordings, which is the collection of them all. So for us, and I think probably for most people, the first Burroughs sound experiments were really heard through that industrial records release because it takes a while for information to filter through. So I think that, you know, that gap between the recordings happening in the 60s and early 70s and then the release in the late I think it was 81 it came out. You have this, you know, people are more open to stuff. And yeah, people's the way they listen has changed maybe. Especially an industrial records audience, right? Whoever their clientele would be then would be Look, really ready for this. So how do we get to Burroughs and recordings in the, what, late 60s, early 70s through to 2023 and experimental music? I mean, I think that's... So you got this Burroughs influence there already. And then, yeah, it's like ripples in a, in a puddle, you know, like on a pond or whatever, you drop a stone in and the ripples go out. 
So those ideas of what is, you know, well, just even the manipulation of speech, you know, and all those things, experiments that he was doing with Ian Somerville and Brian Geisen, where they'd be like edging cassettes, so cassettes, sorry, tapes, through the heads of the tape machine. So you get voices going, and then, you know, putting mics on their throats to try and catch sub-vocal speech. Which is, yeah, all these ideas are just ideas about what does it mean to record and listen. And that now, you know, I think every everyone who records music has, has thought about what does it mean to record and listen, you know. Uh, and I think the technology is there now as well, that people can, you know, you can play with stuff. Like everyone's got a phone where they can, you know, record something and then play it forwards and backwards. So suddenly we're much more aware of the malleability and the way you can manipulate and change things. Uh, and I think that, that all of that owes something to those experiments, to those ideas. Because, uh, but what the other thing that happens next is how we use it. Right. As to how we use it, then becomes important because clearly, for me, Burroughs was doing something radical. But a lot of people, you know, like a disco remix, it's, it might be good, it might be fun, and it might be radical in a different way, but it's not radical in the way that Burroughs was radical. I think when you think about Burroughs and his effect, just the idea that you can sound become something that's mutable, that he, he would you know, be doing experiments with Brian Geisen in Somerville, where they'd be, for example, you know, inching the tape through the heads of the tape machine. So where there's a malleability to sounds that becomes part of their experiment. Those experiments would be done by minimalist composers and they would be engaging with these kind of using tape machines and so on. So it was, it was, yeah, it was part of the discourse of the era. And I think that's important to remember that people were exploring sounds. Uh, and those experiments, we, we sort of take for granted now because you got on, yeah, on your phone, anyone can pick up and make something and record it backwards and forwards. So we, we're used to that. That's all technology that we all have access to. But that idea, those ideas, I think go back to that period and, and obviously sound artists before. But what Burroughs also brought in was a kind of attitude. And that attitude is like the challenge to, you know, uh, systems of control, the idea the universe is pre-recorded and he's tampering with the pre-recordings. So he's bringing in an attitude. So it's not just about the... Uh, an aesthetic stance, but about a kind of philosophical stance. And I think that's what makes it, gives it that radical edge. And that's why when you're looking through those back issues of research and you're seeing those references, well, why are these avant-garde bands saying this? This is why, you know, it's, and I think that's an important thing. It's that the counterculture attitude, you know, that, that obviously Burroughs and the Beats and then the hippies and the punks and so on embraced. Uh, and I think that's what, to me, that's what makes the stuff interesting, is it has to have, it's not just purely aesthetics, there has to be something behind it, there has to be a meaning behind it. I think the John Dentata organ really engages with kind of notions of like things like the ready-made. Uh, but it's also a lot about, in his later work, but in his earlier work was engaged with, uh, I guess the aspect of industrial culture around information. So you have uh, the recording of the, oh, what's the, yeah. You know, the scratch that bit, sorry. Okay, so his early works, Geordie Val's slash Vagina Dentata Organ, released all these records and CDs, uh, later ones of which were based on kind of, I guess, 
in part on surrealist concepts of the ready-made and on Geordie's, what to me is an engagement with surrealism. His earlier work has engaged much more in kind of uh, industrial culture, um, power electronics, and so on. That first record was a series of uh, samples of wolves and attack dogs growling and so on. Music for Hashishians, yeah. Yeah, music for Hashishians. And then... Uh, it becomes like uh, part of a kind of different tradition, which I guess came out of psychic TV and the idea of kind of sound as a form of magic. Although that's on, that's framed by that on the cover notes. Uh, so it says on the cover something like it's music intended for rituals or something. But I mean, it's more. It's also it's more than that because that's a slightly tongue-in-cheek aspect of it because it's also just an experiment with sound because it sounds good. Uh, so that's that's an important part of that one. But then that later ones, like the... Uh, Chant de Catalan, the motorbike recordings, what it is is that each... It's a series of recordings and each one is... Uh, got Yeah, it's titled and so on. And they, it's all... Uh, has references to kind of various things in Geordie's life and so on. Uh, but it all just sound is the sound of motorbikes. Uh... But Geordie is very much in that tradition. He, uh, Vagina Dentata's work is very much in this tradition of experimental sound about what, what does sound mean? What does it mean to listen to sound? How do audiences listen to sound? How, how do we present sound? How do we engage with sound? So on one level, it's like that. But on the other level, there's a level of humor in there. Uh, there's a level of, you know, an awareness of the tradition. Uh, that's been worked worked in and so on as well. So that was also part of uh, what Geordie does. One of Geordie's records, he went to the town of Calenda, where to celebrate uh, Good Friday, the residents of the town all drum. And they have uh, two different kinds of drums, and everyone drums. And it lasts for about 24 hours. And it marks the moment that Christ died on the cross. So if you read the Bible, when Jesus dies on the cross, the sky turns black uh, and there's an earthquake. I can't remember which gospel that's in. But in this Catholic tradition in this town, what they do is they all drum and they march through the streets drumming. And Julie went there and did this thing. So he drummed, all these people go there and he walks along and did the drumming uh, and recorded it uh, and then released that as a record. And obviously, with the physicality of the drumming, his hands, yeah, yeah, your hands bleed. Yeah. Uh, so some of the records came with actually freeze-dried blood put into the actual uh, <laughs> picture disc. So then you get this idea of the record as an art object as well. Uh, so he works on all these different levels. So something like that is a sound piece. It's kind of an, almost like an anthropological piece because it's about... A piece like that is also an ethnographical piece because it's like he's immersing himself in this kind of ethnographic experience of becoming one of the people in this community, drumming on the drums and partaking in the ritual. Right. Uh, but it's also an art piece and it's also, yeah, an experimental music piece. It's a load of, you know. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a long tradition of artists, especially kind of people working in performance art, using bodily fluids in their work. So, uh, you know, Herman Nietzsche or someone like that working with cow's blood, for example. Uh, but there's a, yeah, there's a long tradition of artists engaging with that. So I think 
when Geordie's doing it, he's also, I mean, he's totally aware of the tradition of art. So, yeah, that's part of his blood paintings as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned two eras of Geordie's work or sort of a defining line in terms of the more surrealist and the more industrial culture focused stuff. Where, what's the turning point for those? Okay, so for me, I guess that turning point is he stopped releasing records in the late 80s and there was a gap and he suddenly moved away from vinyl to CDs in the 90s and the approach, the aesthetics was different. Uh, it felt, it feels different when you listen to it. The timbre of the sounds are different. It's more noticeably engaging with kind of questions of surrealism you get from uh, the work of people like, you know, Dali and so on and Bumwell. Uh, and... I think there's a kind of thematic shift and an aesthetic shift. Uh, and I think, I mean, that's true of any artist, you know, how their work grows and develops. Yeah. And I think that for those vagina dentata releases, the change is at that point for me. Uh, but other people might notice other things. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, the reading of his his work is is my reading of it. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and as you're writing this book, what... What are you focusing on for the book? What are the what are the oh, topics wow. at uh, hand? So, so going through all the going through the releases, going through the way in which they operate, the way in which they can be read, the way in which he wants them to be read, or I think he wants them to be read because he doesn't always say. Uh, it's not always you know, uh, and also, I guess it's also how it relates to things like power electronics, industrial music, the kind of post-industrial, post-punk music of the late 80s, uh, how it relates to sound art. Because uh, I think the, the influence of sound art, of this kind of work on sound art, can't be underestimated either. Like, you know, I, but I don't mean like... Uh, I, don't, I don't mean... That ambient stuff, but actually, when you go into a gallery and there's like sound art installations you listen to and so on, so I think that the, the Burrow stuff can be found in that as well, and I think the Geordie is part of that tradition as well, like that sound art tradition, uh, in how we can listen to it. And it's also a performance thing. So the one with the dogs growling, for example, was performed very famously on Spanish TV. Amazing, amazing footage that uh, it needs to be seen. It's, <laughs> Yeah, so there's a performance aspect to that as well. So I think it's, you know, my, my writing is engaging or trying to engage with all these different aspects, but also and then relating it and linking it up, making kind of connections to other things as well. Uh, well, has Jordy done other performances like that performing of Music for Hashishans where he's got he's, German shepherds and the paintings and the sword and, you know, all of this and the keyboard, of course, all of this stuff going on in that piece is uh, pretty varied and absurd and surreal performance. Yeah. Vagina Dentata Organ have done a series of performances where they have a collection. They have a number of drummers who come and, and drum uh, that he will lead them walking along, uh, cracking a whip, uh, and he will, and they'll have extracts from records playing and so on, his records playing. And it, yeah, often culminating in the destruction of mirrors and so on. So he does these performances as well. But as part of a wider, it's not always just him performing. As I say, there's normally a number of drummers there. Okay. Uh, so that does, 
final section of the book is dealing with all of that stuff as well. Uh, so yeah, so all of this is all of this is in it in the book and wrapped up within the book as well. Uh, which I'm still as I said, I'm still writing this last bit. It's looking. I mean, it's interesting because there's so much. There's a lot of ideas in it, and it's, to me, it's a very, he's very much. A, there's a kind of conceptual element to it as well, and that goes back to what I said earlier about Burroughs and you know the ideas. It's not just simply the experiment, but the ideas behind it, and that obviously goes back to the industrial stuff, like throbbing gristle and so on, with those reading lists and the ideas behind it. And ironically, and I'm probably going to shoot myself in the foot and get this wrong, but ironically, I think that argument I mentioned between throbbing gristle or Jen and the Human League guys in that article, I'm fairly certain that that was almost the, the bone of contention between them, that it was the ideas behind it. But I'm going to probably have to phone you up and say, I found the article. <laughs> uh, but I think that, that, that the ideas are what matters. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a conceptual element to all of this stuff, even if the concept might be, yeah, we're going to temporarily kind of lose ourselves in percussion right there is a and it's not just entertainment there's nothing wrong with it being entertainment but it's, there's something else more in there and i suppose that's to me that goes back to all of this stuff that i've said is that the ideas the, the thinking about it the articulation of ideas the, the contextualization of literature whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs> so in writing this book about vagina dentata organ, I assume you're in contact with Jordy about a lot of this stuff. Are you, oh, yeah. are you getting a lot of questions cleared up? Are you getting down to the root of these things? And how much, as someone who's played with, let's wait for that. As someone who's played with a lot of uh, sort of misinformation in their work or misdirection, I guess, how forthcoming is Jordy on <laughs> what actually is going on with these pieces? I mean, Jordy's very talkative, very easy to communicate with. I interviewed him. Uh, I've interviewed him at length twice in person. I've interviewed him or asked him questions uh, via email and via you know, messenger and so on numerous times. Like, is this? Does this mean this? And when did you do this? And he's, he's, yeah, he's very easy to talk to, very easy to communicate with. Uh, he's, he's a good, he's a good, a very good person. Uh, but you know, I've not found anyone who makes art that, in some ways, considered to be dream or confrontational or challenging, who isn't exceptionally yeah, willing to talk and share their ideas. Right. That every, yeah, I think that if you're a creator, you want to talk about your stuff. So, as we've mentioned, Burroughs in in Jordy's work, and of course, just the influence on industrial music i was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently about how the direct influence of william burroughs seems to have lessened over the years where we you know in the interviews that you saw when you were growing up in a lot of the art that i was consuming early you know in the late 90s early 2000s there was definitely a lot more reference to william burroughs whereas you know you mentioned the idea of sort of throwing a stone in the pond and watching the ripples spread out we're at the tail end of those those ripples for the direct effect but they're still felt what do you think that artists and, and musicians who are coming to this stuff now or who may be younger than us and didn't have that direct influence of those 
those people that we were listening to telling us to check this stuff out and referencing this stuff and those articles about Burroughs being around, what can they learn and what should they look back on to pick out from that? I think the really important thing is, is for people to, you start where you are, you know? So like I discovered Burroughs through, as I said, you know, like industrial music or whatever. And I didn't know anything about jazz. And I, you know, I, f- I found out about jazz after finding about the beatniks. After find- so it's a process. And I think that if somebody picks up a, I don't know, some 12-inch single that's remixed and they just start you know, thinking about, oh, what, who's this sample or whatever? Uh, oh, this is remixed by this DJ who once did this. Or, yeah, there'll be some, there's, there's still that, those lines of flight, those journeys you can have. But I don't think that, I think you start where you are and you, whatever your way in is your way in. Everyone's going to have a different way in. Uh, and then different readings, different ter- interpretations and different ways in. And people will find their own ways into it. Uh, and I think that's, you know, what matters is, to me, what matters is that people keep questioning things, they keep exploring, they realize that whatever creative field they're in, you should not be limited. You should take, you know, take, engage with your work. You shouldn't, I'm always saying, you know, was it, people should just, you should just do, do the work, you know, uh, and not be constrained. You know, if you, if you want to go out and write a book or paint a picture or form a band, go and do it. Don't, uh, you know, don't seek permission. <laughs> uh, and I think that, that kind of spirit of that, it does go back to, you know, you could chase these kind of counterculture figures who say things like that and have articulated that kind of perspective. So it doesn't really matter if they read The Naked Lunch or not. It, what matters is that that sense of possibility is there, you know. And I think that once that's there, and once people start creating, you, you, at some point you start looking at the tradition you're a part of. You start looking at, you know, what's happened before, what's happening around you. And I think that, you know, you become aware you're not in a vacuum and you become aware that you're in a tradition. You're in a, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, in a, in a kind of countercultural tradition. And even though you might hate other stuff, it doesn't mean it's not the, ge- yeah, like the gesture that was created before informs your gesture, you know? Uh, so to me, that that's, that's my answer. I think that, it doesn't matter exactly how you get into it. What matters is you pursue your creativity and create something, you know. And to me, the work should be good. It should be challenging, and it should ask questions, and it should, you know, not necessarily provide entertainment as the first stop. You know, I. Yeah. All right. Well, Jack, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for your work. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I hope we can uh, talk again sometime. For sure. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought maker of quality contact Patreon supporters. Their Patreon at Patreon. On Instagram at Noise Extra. On the web at Noise And on Twitter at Noise Extra. Thank you for listening to us and the noise.